when we read this passage, Jesus is making comparisons between these cities in Israel where he's been preaching and performing these miracles, comparing them to these Gentile cities, such as Sodom and Sidon and Tyre. These are cities that were known for their ungodliness. They're known, in particular Sodom, for God destroying it because of their wickedness, because of the sin that was in that city. We can go through the Old Testament, we can see Tyre and Sidon, and we see God's judgment against those cities because of their sin, because they rejected God, because they got in the way of God's people. And this is who Jesus is now comparing Israel, the Jews, to these people and saying that those Gentiles, the ones that God destroyed for their sin, would have responded to Jesus when these people in Israel refused. And the reason Jesus is condemning these cities, these towns in Israel, verse 20 says that it's because they wouldn't repent. If you were here last week, we were looking at the previous verses. Jesus made the point that they were rejecting John the Baptist because he didn't eat and drink with them. And then they said he had a devil because of it. And then they rejected Jesus because he did eat and drink and he communed with the people. And they accused him of being a drunk and a glutton. And they associated him with the sins of the people he was ministering to. It seemed no matter who came, no matter how they came, no matter what they did, these people just would not repent. They refused to change. And now Jesus starts pointing outside of Israel and making this declaration that those people, those Gentiles, would have responded. They would have believed Jesus. They would have repented had he gone to those cities and done what he did in Israel. The question I have is, what about us? What about the church today? Would we have believed? Would we have repented? Or would we have been like these cities in Israel that refused? Of course, we want to say that we would repent, we would believe. We all want to think that we're different, that we wouldn't be part of the crowd that rejected and hated and crucified Jesus. We probably think because we're here in a Christian church, the fact that we do believe in Jesus at this point is proof that we wouldn't have been a part of that crowd that Jesus is referring to. But I wonder if that's necessarily true. I ask that, I wonder that, because when we consider who Jesus is talking to, and then we make the leap to today and consider who he would have been talking to if he had come in our lifetime, and we can see some comparisons here. 
when we've been going through the book of Matthew, I often point to the scribes and the Pharisees because they are the leaders, they're the religious leaders who openly oppose Jesus. But there's multitudes of others who Jesus preached to and he performed his miracles in front of. He healed countless people with every kind of disease imaginable. Things like blindness, deafness, restoring withered limbs, things that were completely impossible to the medical system of their day. He did this publicly with people that the crowd knew. They knew these things were real problems in these people's lives. Jen was watching uh, Little Host on the Prairie the other day, and this traveling doctor comes to town with his miracle potion to fix whatever the disease is, and of course, this other traveler comes to town with that particular ailment, and he comes and buys the miracle cure, and he's cured instantly. And of course, it's a scam trying to sell the miracle cure. And we see similar things going on on TV and the TV evangelists with their healing ministries and the things that they do are proven over and over again to be fake. But that's not the kind of healing that Jesus did. Jesus healed completely, perfectly, publicly, people that they knew had problems and problems that they knew couldn't be healed other than through a miracle. Even doing things like feeding thousands of people with a single bagged lunch. These are things that people saw with their eyes that they couldn't deny. These crowds followed Jesus around. They ultimately, for the most part though, ended up not believing in Jesus. Certainly not to the point of repenting and following him. Jesus made a statement in Matthew 7, verse 14. He said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The statement was proven true. Not only among the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, but also among the rest of the people, these multitudes, these thousands of people that gathered around Jesus, in the end, were part of the voices shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. There's no doubt that the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, were the ones that instigated what happened to Jesus, but without the people's consent, without the multitudes following the lead, they could have never caused the uproar that persuaded the Romans to allow Jesus to be crucified. The Romans didn't want to deal with that. But it was the people, their voices, demanding it that made them give in. These people, the multitudes, were just common, regular, everyday people who worked regular jobs, 
They had families. They had businesses. Maybe they had hobbies. But they also had the stress and the burden that daily life brings. And they had the added burden of having that Roman military ruling over them during that time. But these Jewish people were very strict in their adherence to their religion. Almost universally among the people, they would have taken part in all of the religious requirements that the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees told them that they had to do. This would include things like observing the Sabbath day, that's doing no work in that, on that day. They had to re respect the dietary restrictions. They would observe the various feasts through the year and they would be bringing the prescribed offerings to the temple at the times that they were supposed to do that. And in the end, they would also be attending the synagogue services each week and whatever other things that were commanded to them by those religious leaders. This is a very religious people, a very religious crowd that Jesus is presenting himself in front of. But we see an example of the control that these religious leaders had over the people. See in John chapter 9, if you want to turn there. In this chapter, Jesus has healed a blind man. But he did it on the Sabbath day. And the leaders of the synagogue are trying to find a way to make an accusation against Jesus. They're trying to either disprove the miracle or trap him in having broken the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath day. And so these leaders of the synagogue are questioning this man who's been healed of his blindness, doubting whether he was even blind. And yet everyone assures them that yes, this indeed is the man who was born blind. He had been blind his whole life. And when we get down to verse 18, these leaders are now at, find the man's parents, and they start to question them. It says, But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already, that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. And so we see the parents of this man are afraid to give an answer 
to these leaders of the synagogue because the plan is to banish anybody from the temple or from the t synagogue who says anything positive about Jesus. And they have this control over the people, over their lives, and this would extend far beyond just going, as in our day, going to church, but it controls their businesses, their livelihood, their interaction with the whole community is going to be affected if they go against what these religious leaders say and do. They had absolute control over these people. When we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus challenged their teaching and understanding of the scriptures, Jesus presents a picture of God that was very different from what they've been taught, different from what they've established as their definitive truth about God. And they were quite happy with their own version of who God was, a God that they could manipulate and control, a God that bent to their will, that worked in their favor. They had established a religion that essentially consisted of a list of do's and don'ts, a checklist. It was a religion based around a system that they were able to manipulate in their own favor. And Jesus comes along and he undid all of that manipulation. And he presented God in all of his righteousness, in all of his holiness, all of his justice and judgment. But Jesus did more than challenging their status quo. He made it clear that under their system of religion, they did not have a relationship with God and they would have no access to God's kingdom. What Jesus was teaching was going to require them to set aside their rituals, their traditions. They're going to have to turn from their understanding and from their teachings and repent to change their lives, their view of who God is and how they are to serve God. It was going to require a complete change in their lives. And it's that change that these people refuse to make. They would not repent. We have to remember, this is God's chosen people. This is the nation that God had established and called his own. This is the nation that God had revealed himself to in the Old Testament scriptures. These are the people that God sent his prophets to time and time again to correct and to point them in the right direction towards God. This is the people that Paul describes in Romans chapter 3, and he asks the question, he says, what advantage hath the Jew? And he answers his own question, what advantage hath the Jew? He says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Paul says, they had every advantage. They had the scriptures that told them who God is. They had the scriptures that showed what God wanted of them. They had the scriptures that pointed to Jesus as their Messiah. They had every advantage, yet the majority rejected the truth that Jesus presented to them. 
They rejected the salvation that Jesus presented to them. And they rejected the peace with God that Jesus was offering to them. So what about us? What about the church today? How are we like the Jews in Jesus' time? Do we go through the motions of religion? Do we try to manipulate the Bible to create a God that fits into the box that we're willing to have him exist inside of? How does the church measure up to the Bible? Do we do the same things the Jews did? Are we searching the scriptures, trying to find ways that we fall short of what God wants from us? Or do we largely ignore what it says, looking only to support our biases and the beliefs that we're willing to hold? How does the church respond when someone comes along and opens up their Bible and challenges our long-established traditions and ideas? Do we respond the way the Jews in Berea did? Paul and Silas went into their synagogue to preach about Jesus. And they must have proclaimed him fulfilling the scripture. The Bible doesn't say what they preached. But in Acts 17, verse 11, it says that they received the word with all willingness of mind. And they searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. The Bereans were willing to receive this new teaching, this teaching about Jesus. But at the same time, they didn't just receive it blindly. They took in what was taught them, and then they went on their own and they started to study and read and searched to find out if those new teachings were true or right. This is how the church should respond. We should be ready and willing to learn more about who God is. We should desire to believe only things that are true. And we should be determined to live according to that truth. We should be willing to change, to repent, if that's what's required. In Matthew 7, right after stating that few there be that will find that narrow way, Jesus gives a warning about false teachers. In our Bible study, we were looking at the book of Timothy, and through both 1st and 2nd Timothy, it's filled with warnings about false teachers and false doctrines. And in 1st Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 19, it says, For there must be heresies among you. There must be heresies among you. God's warned us over and over again that there's going to be heresies, there's going to be false teachers in our churches. We should expect that much of what we get taught is false, is wrong. We need to be wary and we need to study our Bible and verify with whether what we hear and are taught is true. We should never take a person's word as truth. We need to study and verify that for ourselves. 
remember it was the it was the Jewish leaders that rejected and taught against Jesus. It was the leaders of the church who rejected Jesus and taught others and led others to deny him as well. It's those in the Bible who had every advantage because of their access to the scriptures that rejected the teachings of Jesus. We need to be careful about blindly following religious leaders. We need to think for ourselves. We need to study for ourselves. Quite a while back, we were listening to various preaching and um, we had some recordings of John MacArthur had a question and answer session and we were listening to a number of those and I remember standing there as he's answering these questions and I two or three questions in a row I completely disagreed with his answer to those questions and just on the spot was able to give scriptural reasons as to why I disagreed with his answers. Now, John MacArthur can run laps around me with his knowledge of the Bible. He could teach me day and night for year after year of things that I don't know. But does that mean that I should take everything that he says as being right and true? fact is, is he's a man and he is not perfect and there's going to be times when he is wrong in those cases to me it seems like he's repeating what he's been taught because of the circle of people that he has grown up among and he just repeats the teachings but having not grown up not learned in that those particular doctrines, I was able to look at my Bible and say, I disagree with that answer. It doesn't matter who it is that's speaking. We need to question whether or not what they're saying is true. We need to study the Bible for ourselves. Being wrong is inevitable. The more I speak, the more opinions I have, the more chance I have of saying or believing something that's not entirely right or true. But the question is, is am I willing to admit when I'm wrong, when I've been proven wrong, especially concerning scripture? Am I willing to even consider the possibility that I might be wrong? This is where the Jews failed with Jesus. And I believe it's where much of the church is also failing today. There's so many contradicting teachings in the name of Christianity. But there's one thing that can be sure is that they cannot all be right. Most of us are teaching something that isn't actually true. We need to be careful to study the Bible to make sure that we're as accurate as we can possibly be. And when somebody teaches us something, we need to get in there for ourselves and search that thing out and find out if that is a true statement. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. If we notice in verse 16, it warned about people wrestling with the scriptures, trying to make it say things that it doesn't say, or trying to stop it from saying what it does say. This is a warning to each one of us, because it could very well be a description of every one of us. And it probably is a description of us at one time or another in our life. And we look back at verse 14, and he says, Be diligent. And he gives a reason. He says, That ye may be found in peace. Be diligent that ye may be found in peace. Not wrestling and fighting the scriptures. We need to be diligent in the way that we search the scriptures. We need to be willing to learn. We need to be willing to change, to turn, to repent, if we find that we've been wrong in some area. God describes the Jews as being a stiff-necked people and stubborn. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching to the crowd that's about to stone him to death. And near the end of that, in verse 51 through 54, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And then they stoned him to death. They didn't repent. They didn't change. Even though every word that he said was true. And they knew it was true. They were cut to the heart, it says. They knew that his words were true, but they refused to change and repent. We have the scriptures. We have the Holy Ghost to guide us. Why do we resist changing our hearts? 
Why do we resist the leading of the Holy Ghost in our lives? Let's not be that stiff-necked people who resist God, but let's soften our hearts to his word and be willing to change. We need to be willing to become what he wants us to be. Back in Peter, 2 Peter 3, the warning is there. He says, lest ye also fall away. It's so important for us to know ourselves, to understand our own reluctance to change, our unwillingness to concede to being wrong. It's true that we can only receive salvation when we admit that we need it, that we're a sinner who cannot achieve that on our own. And that's the only time we can receive that salvation is by admitting that I can't do it myself. And we can only begin to grow and to change when we admit that we need to change, that we are wrong in our views and beliefs. I like that Peter closes the chapter in verse 18 with this very simple yet vital instruction that sums up everything that I've said this morning. It says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word warns us. It gives us these examples of these people who rejected Jesus as he presented himself to them, Lord. And they had every advantage. They had the scriptures. They had the prophets. They had every opportunity to know and believe the truth. But they rejected it when it was offered to them. Lord, help us to not be like that. Help us to be soft, to receive the truth when we're taught the truth. Help us to be willing to change, to repent when we are wrong, Lord. Again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask your blessing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.